Hey, this is David Ellison from Megadeth here. It is time to focus on metal. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, bringing you yet another week of that which we call Focus on Metal. We have got a crammed show this week, and the uh, kind of the total theme of this week's show is hardworking metalheads out there as we bring you talks with Megadeth's Dave Ellison, as well as the always busy, and you'll find out just how much, guitarist Joel Holkstra. So two great returning guests talking all about what is going on in their worlds right now. Even as we're quarantined down, you'll hear through these interviews just how insanely busy these guys are, the amount of stuff they're doing uh, just within the industry, and it's, it's amazing. So, you know, we had these two interviews that were out there that Richie did in totally separate time frames, but ultimately they come down to the same thing, which is that even with everything locked down, even without any touring going on, we have uh, guys out there that are just incredibly, incredibly busy. And these are just two optimal examples, just kind of a microcosm of what's going on out there in the industry right now. So lots of great content this week, and we're going to kick it off right now as uh, we sit down with Richie and Dave Ellison of Megadeth. Richie? Yeah. Hi, David. How are you doing? Good, man. What's happening? How are you? I'm okay. So are you, you're at home, are you? I am at home. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, where are you at? I'm just outside of Boston, and it just started snowing. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. I know. My my wife's back in New Jersey. We have another place back there where she grew up, so she's back there helping out on some family stuff this week, and she told me the same thing. Said it looks like there's some pretty pretty gnarly storms coming in, cold and snow, and so I go. Yeah. That's why I love being out in Arizona. Yeah. Sunny, clear blue skies. <laughs> uh, when, it, when it snows over here, I feel I should have stayed in Ireland. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ireland, it snows, but it's pretty mild, you know? So, uh, yeah, Boston gets a little more rough. But, uh, well, good. it's good to hear from you, man. I appreciate you. appreciate you calling. Yeah, no problem. Uh, David, I want to start off with asking a question about uh, <laughs> years ago, you did a book on the music business and a guide for young musicians. Yeah. If you were to update that now and put a chapter in on COVID, what what would you put in it? <laughs> yeah, stay at home. <laughs> um, well, you know, it's funny. That book was more of a how-to regarding the business. Um, and, you know, I think what I tried to parlay in there is just some very positive, forward-thinking concepts about uh, the business of music. Because... You know, I didn't talk anything in there about playing, about the creative aspects, about any of that stuff. I just talked strictly about producers, managers, record companies, contracts, you know, the things that are really, you know, you can't really go to school. Well, not, it's funny that when I wrote the book, there were no courses on music business. And it's funny, after I wrote that book, colleges uh, around the world uh, finally started offering things, uh, courses, and, and even degree programs about music business. And now even uh, there's some schools that even offer degree programs on, on music production, um, be it live staging, lighting, live sound, or, you know, film scoring and these kind of things. So it, things have come a long way since I wrote that book. Uh, in fact, I've been told that book even got has been used in classrooms and colleges and put in libraries of colleges as a go-to source for, for music education, uh, hmm. music business education. So, um, but yeah, you know, this, this year, you know, look, that book was born of experience. And for me, it's say, do as I do, not as I say, you know, in other words, is David Ellison doing the things he's talking about? You know, it's rubber meets the road. That's how I look at this stuff. So my attitude is always talk about what you've done or what you're doing, not what you're going to do. Hmm. Um, and so this year, I think, uh, look, I've got this new book, Rockstar Hitman, that I wrote. I've got the new Ellison No Cover record that um, we put together. That that was as soon as June we started that. Um, 
I've got another album that's uh, being mixed right now that's going to come out next year. I've got a second, uh, or actually a third Ellison solo record that's going to be coming out. Um, that we're, it's about half mixed, half written. So again, um, what, what I would say is, you know, there's no time like the present and be willing to be flexible. Um, the army has a saying, overcome, adapt and improvise. And I think that's it. Overcome your, overcome the emotion, um, adapt to what reality is and learn how to improvise mm. start to make shit up <laughs> you know yeah. what i mean as you go along yeah um i think that's 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 you know look we're in the creative business so it's like don't let reality dictate your script you write the new script that's what we do we create things so we can create new realities mm. for ourselves david this is probably the longest you've ever been off the road um have you have you enjoyed the break as much as you thought you would? I, I, I've actually been off longer than this, to be honest with you. Um, actually, I think ninety six um, ninety six was off. We were off the road, kind of late ninety five, all of ninety six into um, kind of you know, almost summer of ninety seven. Um, uh, coming out of euthanasia, we were writing and recording cryptic writings and then the setup and the release. So that was almost 18 months. So this actually has not been the longest, um, um, you know, back in the nineties when we were making records, you know, they would take a long time. You know, we would take six months to write it, another several months to record it. And then, you know, another three, four months to set it up with promotion and publicity and, you know, so those were long uh, endeavors. Um, but um, as far as just sort of being um, forced home, you know, as far as any, you know, uh, th that, you know, yeah, that for sure. Um, but, you know, the, the, the truth of it is, is, you know, what you and I are doing right now on this phone call, doing an interview, I mean, this is what you do when you're setting up records and promoting things. Um, you know, concert tours are only one way you promote new releases and new products. So, um, you know, in 96, my son was born, so it was great to be home. Um, that was an awesome year to be home, quite honestly. Um, and I guess probably the same with, uh, 98 into 99 when my daughter was born, you know, kind of the same thing. I went to Nashville and recorded the Megadeth Risk album. And then I was home for, you know, almost a year. Wow. That album was being put into the system. So, you know, these, and I did the same thing this year, you know, came off tour in February, went to Nashville in May and June to record a Megadeth record. And I've been home uh, ever since. Um, well, mostly home. I mean, I actually went out and I did some touring. I did some touring with the Ellison solo band around the no cover record um over halloween and then uh right before thanksgiving so um you know honestly this year for me it hasn't been really much different than any other year to be honest with you okay well that's good to hear um how has the COVID affected your work with the youth foundation though you know, that's one of the things that I think probably kicked into gear the most is we founded that organization back in 2018. And um, earlier this year, we started the Schools Out Initiative to give free music lessons to students all around the world. Uh, we were literally giving lessons to students in Uzbekistan all the way down to Argentina to Chicago, to Texas, you know, um, we were giving lessons all over the world and that really was a great, uh, was a great initiative, um, to help them, uh, quite honestly, you know, and we did some fundraising around it, you know, nonprofits are always in some sort of a fundraising, <laughs> uh, endeavor, um, uh -huh. by the nature of it. But it also, I think opened up these incredible partnerships, you know, with the Grammy music education coalition, um, and, um, and, and quite honestly, um, opened up, uh, a lot of really great dialogue with so many of uh, my friends who are also off the road right now, uh, because of the pandemic. And that's what led to them participating in the no cover record with us. Um, 
because we had just had them on many of our live streams that we were doing um, with uh, with the Osei Kenya stream, uh, stream live streams that we were doing with the foundation and um, and so that's you know it, it's funny how one thing just feeds to the next one and um, you know I, I I did everything from a sports arena tour in Europe in January and February with Megadeth to the Schools Out Initiative with the David Olson Youth Music Foundation. We released two new songs in April and May with uh, the Ellison solo band. I cut Megadeth record. I cut another record. <laughs> we put out the new <laughs> cover record. Uh, I wrote a book, you know what I mean? So, I mean, you know, it's, it's um, you know, being able to stay engaged um, in the creative process is... It's that's what this whole thing is about, you know. So yeah, live touring got impacted. Well, huh? don't sit around and cry. Like get to work doing something else. You know, mm. start writing, start recording. Yeah. Um. You know, it, it it all will open back up again. Um. Just it may not be on our timeline. You know. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the no cover record, David. Uh, what's the biggest challenge in getting the licensing for the songs? The expense, um, the the um, ability to license them wasn't the problem because um, they're all available to license. Some are more expensive than others. Um, the bigger the hit in the modern day, the more expensive they are, um, you know, because they're based on sales um, and, uh, you know, um, so it and, you know, you buy the license. For there, there's a there's a limit of how many physical products you can manufacture with it. And of course, things in America are different because things are based on copyright law. Whereas uh, out of the country in Europe, um, uh, they have a different format, which quite honestly is much easier to uh, license um, and and much less restrictive. Everybody still gets paid, so it all works the same. Um, it's just that the, the platforms that are used to do it are, are, are different. So, um, you know, that's that. This was an expensive record to make, quite honestly, because we, you know, we manufactured uh, physical product and CDs and vinyl. We had to buy these licenses. Um, so it's not like when you get together with your friends at a bar and play cover songs, you can do anything you want because the performing rights societies like BMI, ASCAP and CSAC, they do all the heavy lifting of collecting the money for any live songs you play. That's why live, you can play anybody's song you want. But when you record it, you have to go secure the license. Yeah. Recording, um, you know, and of course the publishing all gets paid directly uh, to the, uh, to the, you know, to the writers and the, and the publishers. So that, that those channels are, are already in place for it. Um, so, you know, a record like this, you know, we didn't have to write the songs, which made the process move along much quicker because everybody just had to learn the parts that had already been written and previously recorded. Um, but the back end and the administrative end of it was, was quite a bit more complex. Yeah. David, were there any songs on, on the no cover album that you learned to play when you were a kid, when you, when you picked up the bass for the first time? Yeah. I mean, um, you know, it's funny, uh, not fragile by Bachman Turner overdrive. That was really the first, uh, record that I had heard, um, as a, a full length LP and, um, you know, when I got my bass guitar, I had no idea how to play it. <laughs> and I had a chord chart. And I'm like, well, but you don't play chords on the bass. What is this? You know, so I called everybody. I called everybody from my third grade band instructor to my, um, you know, my, you know, music instructor to, um, you know, the guy that's, you know, I was, you know, my, my tenor saxophone orchestra band teacher to the church guitar player. I mean, I live in a little, I live outside of a little town, you know, I live in a farm. So I mean, uh -huh. I, I called everybody I could going, how do you play this thing? Like, <laughs> you know, what do you do? And then I learned, Oh, the bass is one note at a time. Oh, okay. Um, and then what is the relation to that note? Oh, that note is usually the root or some sort of harmonic, um, you know, uh, you know, note juxtaposed within the chord change. I was like, Oh my God, this is much deeper than I thought it was, you know, but I learned how to play music. So I was already a musician. 
um, when I, because I'd taken piano lessons and I, t- I was playing the tenor saxophone and orchestra band, so I could already read manuscript music and I, I understood uh, the relation of of an instrument in an ensemble, um, and and I and I understood music, um, bass clef, treble clef, key signatures. You know, I understood all that stuff. So when I got the bass, at least I had some uh, understanding of music. Um, but learning to play a song, um, you know, is kind of a whole other thing because you're learning. In my case, I was learning to play by ear. Um, even when I bought my Kiss Destroyer songbook, it was written in it was written in the proper key and Kiss tuned. You know, a bass is tuned to standard A440, which means the low string is an E. The Kiss tuned down a half step, and I didn't know that. So the way that the manuscript is written in the Kiss Destroyer songbook, all the songs go down E flat. I'm like, but my bass doesn't go down E flat. I'm like, how do I play this? You know, <laughs> so there are all these, all of these complexities. Um, you know, I mean, like growing up to answer your, your question, growing up, the, probably the couple songs I played in, in teenage cover bands when I was already, you know, been playing the bass for five or six years were things like Love Me Like a Reptile, Wasted, um, I think we took a stab at Al Zane and Riff Raff at some point. Um, um, and that was probably about it, to be honest with you. As much as I listened to these songs and they, they were pivotal, life-changing experiences for me as a, as a young musician, um, my bands, I only played a couple of these, actually, in bands growing up. Okay. Um, you brought this out, David, on double vinyl. Uh, where do you stand on the, on the, the whole vinyl revolution now that it's come back? Were you someone that always preferred the vinyl anyway over the digital? <clears throat> no, I hated vinyl, and I, I was I was happy when digital showed up. You know, vinyl's a pain in the ass. It's uh, it melts, it it bends. Sonically, you hear all the distortion and all of the crackles on the, um, you know, with the stylus. And if you don't clean your stylus, lint and dust builds up on it. You know, uh, vinyl is a very high maintenance product. Product um, with a incredible stereo that usually costs astounding amounts of money um, in a properly tuned room to maximize the listening experience, vinyl can be an incredible, uh, you know, listening experience. Um, most, most of us, myself included, I, I don't go to those links, you know, to, to hear my music. I, well, I, I'm probably more, I'm more, I probably behave more like a, well, I'm a Gen Z, but I probably behave more like a millennial or a, or a, or a Gen uh, I'm not a Gen Z, but I'm a Gen X. Like I probably behave my 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 music listening and buying experience is probably more like a millennial or uh, even a you know yeah probably more like a millennial but at least I buy it uh, you know I listen to things online on YouTube um, probably because iTunes came in in the late nineties and saved the world from Napster's um, uh, illegal practice of of um, just giving away music for free. Um, which, of course, as we know, you know, some of our friends like in Metallica, you know, went to, you know, stood up against that um, uh-huh. and and challenged the, the legalities of it. Um, maybe I shouldn't say maybe you can recorrect that. I shouldn't say that they were illegally downloading it. I should say they were just giving it away. How about that? Giving yeah. it away for free. Uh-huh. I don't want to create a, a legal problem here. Uh, <laughs> so they're, you know, giving music away for free. Um you know, Steve Jobs at Apple, you know, found a way via iTunes to corral the business and fans, consumers, and music listeners and made a, a platform with iTunes that that was easy, um, available to everyone, and everybody got paid. So I still use Apple Music, um, and I buy stuff on iTunes with records come out from my friends or even my own records i always buy a copy um and then once i buy it i don't and i pay for the apple streaming service um because i know with apple i'm going to get paid i know with many of the other ones i might get paid but i'm certainly getting paid very little (laughs) so i don't support them um 
Apple has always been, I use Apple products. I own their stock. You know, they're, they're part of my fabric of my professional music life. You know, we use their products in the studios to run pro tools. Like, you know, we make, we, Apple's a big part of Apple's probably as important to my music career as my bass is. Let's put it that way. Wow. Um, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's how in, infiltrated into my life. The Apple products are, um, so, um, you know, so anyway, so, um, you know, so for me, um, vinyl, quite honestly, Tom Hazard is, he's a collector. Uh, he's not a digital man. He's probably 1984. Uh, he lives in that era um, <laughs> as a fan. Cause that's, that's when he's, that's when he started buying records. So like, like a lot of us, we default back to our origins, right? Mm -hmm. So for him, he loves, you know, he's a collector, he's a fan. He buys posters. When we go on tour, we always have posters to sign for the fans. Um, and so he's a big proponent of vinyl. Um, and, and with good reason. I mean, look, we, we offer packages when we put up pre-orders and stuff. And, um, people like to buy a t-shirt and a vinyl and a CD and they, they like that, that buying experience. Um, you know, I, that's not how I consume music anymore. Um, admittedly. And that's funny for me to say that because I own the record company, but I, it's, it's not how I, it's, it's not how I, how I do it. Um, I understand the, the way of the modern man, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, but I think, but I think as you, as a, as a person who owns a, a record company, you have to do all of it. You have to be in touch with, with how, you know, young people, uh, listen to and consume music. Uh, and you also have to be, especially because we're a hard rock and a heavy metal record label as well. You know, we have to be in touch with the buying consumer patterns of, of our, you know, longtime legacy fans, if you will, because they have a different buying pattern. So I think as a, as a, you know, as a reseller, you have to be, have to kind of be hip to all of it. Hmm. David, on, on the no cover record, you more or less stayed away from from doing trash metal songs that people might expect you to do. Uh, was that deliberate? Right. No, it, it wasn't, but it was definitely noted as we got into it. Um, I looked at it and I went, yeah, you know, this is cool. There isn't any thrash metal on here. There's nothing of my generation's, um, meaning, say, let's call it the big four. You know, there's nothing of our generation in here. Um, and there's also, you know, there, there, it's not a heavy metal record. You know, we didn't go, well, we have to have Iron Maiden and Black Sabbath. And, you know, we didn't go sort of down this checklist, this sort of obligatory heavy metal discography. This really is more of a rock record um, because these songs, some of them would, of course, Judas Priest would probably fall under heavy metal. Nazareth would fall under hard rock. You know, uh, Dead Kennedys would fall under punk rock. Billy Idol is probably somewhere between pop punk. Um, you know, uh, not, you know, Alveder Zane, you know, Cheap Trick were, were rock. They were not a heavy metal band. You know what I mean? So I, I like that there's two, basically, essentially two decades from 1974 to 1994. <clears throat> we covered two decades of material. Um, and it's funny as much as us, a lot of us like myself got into metal and are known as thrash metal guys. The reality of it is, is before we created thrash metal, we didn't grow up listening to thrash metal cause we created it. Yeah. <laughs> right. So yeah. there, there, this, this is sort of like the origins. I always say, you know, if you want to, if you want to learn the licks of your hero, go back and listen to what they listen to. Um, and then you'll really understand and I grew up a big Eddie Van Halen fan, right? Mm -hmm. And he would always talk about Communication Breakdown by Led Zeppelin. Obviously, they covered the kinks. Um, would go back to always talk about you know, Clapton and Page and you know, all the, you know, kind of the origins, uh, the original rock guitar players, if you will, you know? Um, and, and it's weird because those guitar players didn't speak to me. They were not my the voice of my generation, but Eddie was Eddie corralled all those influences and brought that forward to 1978 with that first Van Halen record, that Van Halen record spoke to me. So it's interesting how 
you know, and I've done the same thing. Basically, th- this is what this is my this is my story. Uh, mm. This is my musical history story. And so, if you want to know what made me tick, if you're a fan of Peace Cells or Rest in Peace or whatever. Now you know <laughs> this yeah. is this is what got me there. You know, David, did you pick the fight song? Mm-hmm. Did you pick the fight I song? I did actually. Okay, that, I, did. I think that's the I one did. that stands out from all the rest of them. Where it's like, oh. You know, because you, you have your Judas Priest and your ACDCs and all the big, big bands on it. And then you've got a fight track on it. Well, it's interesting with that because as we, literally the first week we were putting this together, I got a notification on my iPhone. Again, back to my Apple. <laughs> it, it came across from YouTube. It was a notification that said, check out F5, Nailed to the Gun. So I, back in the 2000s, I had a band called F5. And we did a cover of Nailed to the Gun. And I had my friend Jimmy DeGrasso play drums on it uh, as he was with me in Megadeth for a few years. So I immediately hit the troops and said, Hey, let's, let's knock down a, a version of this. And Tom suggested, look, let's get Russ Parrish because he was in fight. Yeah. Now known as Satchel with mm-hmm. Panther, of course. Um, and Satchel's truly one of the great guitar players of our, of our era right now. One, just one of the best in the business period. And, um, so for him, you know, to get him to play on it was, was awesome. And that's why I had DeGrasso play on it. And uh, DeGrasso brought Andrew Freeman in, yeah. um, who I'm also friends with. But Jimmy and Andrew had actually recently done something in the quarantine together. And so, um, yeah, it made a really cool kind of updated version of that song. Yeah, yeah. Dave, I just want to spend a couple of minutes talking about the book, uh, The Sledge Chronicles, yeah. Rockstar Hitman. Um, how did you? How do you know Drew, Fortier, the other guy? I met Drew through Tom Hazard. Um, Drew. Um, then I got to know him. Um, I, you know, Tom originally brought him in. He was actually helping kind of uh, in, in do some things for us at the record label. Um, and then I got to know Drew as the, um, you know, I knew he was a guitar player and a musician, um, and. Uh, and and then um, when he brought up, I, I read his his autobiography um, that he had put out a couple of years ago. And then last year, he came to us with this idea of this film that he had called Dwellers, uh, and we agreed to put it out through the Ellison Films imprint. Um, so he, so that'll be coming out February twentieth at the Mad Monster Convention. We're going to premiere that uh, that film in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, and, and so last, literally a year ago, it was like November, December, I was flying around South America on a solo tour. And uh, this idea came to me for this, this rock star hitman book. And I hit Drew right away. I said, man, I, got, I think I got something here. I got a, my first fictional title. I said, I've always wanted to write fiction. I finally, I think I've got the idea now. And I said, uh, I'm, I'm lining out the characters and getting the storyline in place. And I need, I just need some good slashing and killings and beheadings. And I know you're good at that. Funny for two nice guys from the Midwest, you know, <laughs> so it's, uh, that's how I brought Drew in. And, uh, and it was perfect. He, he wrote a prologue and I went, Oh my God, dude, this is just, fucking perfect so mm. um we just we had the best time doing this book and and drew's really good with sort of organizational things so you know as we i created the ellison book company and then i had drew i tasked him with sort of figuring out all the uh, best printing methods and channels and formatting and and we hired melanie myers to do the design of the, the cover and yeah so you know our team you know put the thing together yeah, when I had Mark Tremonti on, he he brought out a dying machine, the album, but he did the same thing you did. He went and he did his first fictional novel. And when I spoke to mm-hmm. him, you could tell how excited he was to actually get that out there because it was so different from what he'd done in the past. Yeah, I mean, you know, a few years back, probably 10 years ago, I wrote a book called Unsung Words and Images. And it was, I put lyrics some lyrics I had and some poetry stuff which, uh, to uh, I, I, I offset each one in the book to a, to a photograph image um, because at some point I was like, you know, the thing about a lyric is it, it, it you have to use 
few words to paint a big picture and tell a story. And it has to be rhythmic. It has to fit through. There's a lot of parameters. And poetry can be kind of the same thing, right? Especially if it's going to be proper prose, you know? Um, but, you know, one of the things I, I was that I love about writing fiction is that it's an open canvas and there's no, there's no meter. There's no rhythm. There's no melody. You can just do whatever you want and you can take it wherever you want. You can, you can even draw it. Just like writing a song, you can draw on some of your own experiences. You can draw on someone else's experiences. Um, and because it's fiction, you know, you're, it's all new characters and dates and times, places and everything. Um, so you, you know, really the sky's the limit with this thing. And that's why when I started it, um, you know, as Drew and I were talking, we realized, look, this is going to be a series of books. Um, and uh, that's why we call it the Sledge Chronicles, because it doesn't have to just be one book, one and done. It, it, it continue, and it doesn't have to be sort of set up like, ooh, maybe there'll be a sequel. No, we're telling you right now there will be, <laughs> you know. And, and I like the idea that, um, that it doesn't have to have an ending. Um, it can just kind of be a continuum as much as each book is a chronicle. Uh, within the, within the narrative. Hmm. Mm. David, did you think about doing it as a comic book? Not this one, I didn't. But uh, I, it's funny. I do have a comic book concept in motion on, on a completely different um, storyline. Um, this one, um, and I don't know if you've read the book or if you got a copy of it. If Not yet. Send me your address. I'd be happy to send you one. I don't know when you're going to publish this uh, interview, but um, if you want, I can, you know, t- text Joe to your address, send, yeah. send it to her right away, and have we'll her get, do. get her over to me. You know, I'll I'll try to get you one. It's a fast read. It's and you'll get the you'll get the the color of the characters, especially Sledge, the the main character. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we we wrote it so that it it, it it's humorous at times. It's harrowing. Um, it's it makes your skin crawl. There's a lot of fun about it. You know what I mean? So it, it truly is a rock and roll story. <laughs> because okay. If you've ever been in a band for more than two minutes, <laughs> you kind of get like, oh, yeah, I, I know what this is about. Um, especially one who's ever hit the big time. You know, you're like, you know, it, it all looks like a lot of fun from the outside until you're on the inside. And you're like, oh, my God, what did I sign up for? You know, and um, and so it's. uh you know, I, I think that this 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 is. I think we found a good voice and a good a good storyline here for this uh, to, to tell this this tale. Okay, David, have you time for one more question? I do. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, um, the Rust and Peace book came out earlier this year. If you were to pick a mega that album, where you could give it the same treatment with all the characters in it, the producers, band members, the whole lot, which mega that album would you pick? Well, I think the one that would probably be the most fun and, again, harrowing, because I think that's a big part of it, is to keep your audience on the edge of their seat. <laughs> um, I would say probably the Peace Sells record, because there's so much to that story and um, uh, the lifestyle we were leading at that time, uh, out of necessity. Um, you know, we were very poor um, as a band. We didn't have money, and the things that, you know, just the, the four different characters in the band. I mean, you could, you could almost do a comic book out of that <laughs> um, <laughs> because it's, it, it's such a, it's such a harrowing tale. You almost can't believe it. You know what I mean? And um, yet, and, and in, in a comic book, you could almost go, wow, unbelievable, you know? And, and, and somehow, I don't know, the good guy ends up winning, you know, which would be Megadeth somehow. You know, we, we sort of lived to fight another day. Mm, I, I'd love to read one on the Risk record, personally. Well, you know, it's funny. I, the other one that I was thinking would be Countdown to Extinction, because that was a, a record that had a lot of twists and turns in it um, to capture uh, what 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 it is, um, but uh, or what it became, um, and 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 then also how the how the campaign ended. Uh, kind of unexpectedly and a little bit um, preemptively, um, the, the campaign wound down in 1993. But that, that's another one. And and you know, look, you know, look, they could they could all be a part of a series. To be honest with yeah. you, it's uh, you know, it's it, it's that we are that band, and it is that story. Yeah, yeah. So, David, do you want to give out all the the social media sites where people can get in touch with you, buy the record and the book? Sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, davidellison.com is the best place, I guess, to go with everything. Also, uh, facebook.com slash davidellison. All the ordering links are there. Coffee is ellisoncoffeeco.com to order coffee. Um, as for, um, obviously, megadeth.com for megadeth stuff. And uh, for the book, uh, it's bnn.com. So like Bar- it's Barnes & Noble. So b, the ampersand, n.com or amazon.com for the Rockstar Hitman book. Perfect. Well, David, I'm going to leave you go. It's been a pleasure talking to you again. Yeah, man. Thanks so much. Again, hit Jody if you want, and I'll, I'll bang a book over. I will. I look forward to reading it. Thanks yeah. for your time. Okay, thanks. Okay, yep, thanks bye. So Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. This is Joel Hookstra of Whitesnake, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Richie. Hey, Joel. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks. How are you, man? I'm okay. Nice to talk to you again. Um, I just started quarantining yesterday with my family, so it's been uh, up in the air whether I'd even get to do this interview or not. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, you haven't had to go through that, have you? Uh, not really. No, not like a, a set quarantine. I mean, we're just we're just in a lot. I I just am, period. I'm doing all my work from home, and I don't really have much of a need to go out these days. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a dad with two small kids, and so... Yeah, and my extent of going out is dropping them off at school or picking them up from school. That's yeah. about it. And, and honestly, I wouldn't be doing any different. If, um, maybe here and there we'd be headed out to a restaurant or something. But um, uh, as far as my lifestyle at home, it's pretty similar to what it normally is. Yeah. So even when you're not playing live, Joel, you're, do you still play a lot of guitar at home? I'm playing a ton, man. I'm super busy right now. I, I um, Mainly with teaching. I teach 30 students a week. And I have um, also some master classes with Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp and some other outlets and doing lots of personalized greetings, cameos where I play for people in those, I'd say 10, 15 a week. And I'd say doing three, four sessions a week for people. And then in addition, just writing for projects like the project I have out um, later this year with Michael Sweet and Nathan James and uh, writing a bit with my friend Jim Peterick right now for an album he's producing. And then there's the quarantine videos that everybody's doing right now. So I've been honestly busier than ever, man. It's it's weird if you say that, Joel, because I think a lot of fans might think that a lot of musicians, they're not doing anything because they're not playing live. That live is more or less their bread and butter when it comes to income. But it, it's great to see that actually a lot more musicians are doing a lot more than you think. I think that touring is is most people's bread and butter for sure. It was mine, and the, the so teaching is basically doing that for me um, for the time being, and and that's fine. It's going fine, honestly. Um, I don't mind it. You know, uh, it's it's better than not having an income. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. So uh, to have that opportunity, I mean, I, I think there are some musicians out there that are just kind of like you know just treading water until touring resumes. But I think that's presumptuous. And I think it's, uh, for me, it's not something I can wrap my head around just not being productive for a year or a year and a half. That's an awful long time in your life to just kind of chalk up to uh, mm. taking a vacation. Yeah, true. <laughs> Joel, I always ask the guitar players this question. Uh, how many guitars do you have in your house? Uh, I, I have about, I think it's, 30, 35, something like that. It depends if you count my things like a banjo and a lap steel. Uh, so there's a couple little like fringe items like that that are like, well, does that count? Is that a guitar? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's something about there, mate. Yeah, when I, when I interviewed Red Beach just before Christmas about his uh, instrumental solo record, and I asked him, does he collect guitars? And he said, he's not the guy that collects. But what about you? Um, I mean, I think I have 40, but they all get used, and they're all kind of beat up in one way or another. So I, I don't collect them to um, not play them and resell them someday. That's, um, I, I, I do have, I mean, I think that that's a reasonable amount of guitars to play considering I've been at this a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, there are some that see more action than others, but they all see action at right. some point. So how many guitars did, of those guitars did you use on running games? Um, really just four. I use, oh, I take that back because there's a 12 strand on it, so five. 
used uh, my my gold top Les Paul on pretty much the whole record. And then if there was clean stuff, I used a Fender Strat. And if there was ever sustained stuff or Floyd Rose stuff, I used my Jackson PC1. And then as far as acoustic goes, um, I just used a Taylor 12-string and a Taylor 6-string. Okay. Now, the new record, was it always a case of when and not if? Um, no, I mean, I think for a while there was an if. And then it just kind of became one of those things that I definitely wanted to do. I'm like, I, I think I hadn't been hot about it for a little bit. And then I finally just went, yeah, just do it, you know. And uh, <laughs> just get it out there, man. So I, it's something that eventually the the the... I guess the want for me to release my own music and have um, some artistic output always wins out over like, you know, even if it's going to be not a great deal for me in terms of business. Hmm. Now the press release says that running games, it's more focused and more mature than dying to live. Can you elaborate on what your reasons are as to why? Yeah. I don't know about more mature. That wasn't my quote. I'm not sure where that came from, but the, the, the more focused, I'd say, that just comes from dying to live, kind of being, becoming what it was, like, as a process. So it started out really heavy, and then by the, the end of it, it was kind of ending up more melodic uh, because it signed with Frontiers. And, I mean, at the beginning of it, I was just like, okay, Vinny Apathy, Russell Allen, let's go for a deal-ish, really heavy thing. And um, as it evolved, it kind of became clear what the album was. Mm. So definitely more stylistically diverse. And then this one, I, I guess I just kind of knew the center of the sound a little bit better in terms of the style. <laughs> so I uh, was able to write, I guess, in those guidelines a little bit more. Okay. Were any of the ide- uh, these ideas presented to David Coverdale for Flesh and Blood? Um, not, re- not really per se. There may-, may be a couple of the riffs here and there, but I think there's really only a couple on there that would fit as Whitesnake songs. The way we ended up working on Flesh and Blood more and finding our groove was having songs that David had choruses for or ideas for and then completing those. So that tended to be more of our writing groove. Okay. What did you learn from David about songwriting after you did that record? So one thing that stands out about him that the way he approaches songwriting that really influenced you moving forward. Well, I, I love that he's just very intuitive and quick about it. So if something doesn't grab him, then it's a no. He doesn't uh, overthink it. He doesn't overwrite. Um, so that I just the the ability to follow your instincts and to um, I guess keep it. Uh, keeping it simple is the wrong term because it makes it sound like <laughs> it sounds derogatory. But I guess not overwriting. Not mm. overwriting would be the most accurate. Yeah, Rev said to me when I asked him that question, I asked him the difference between the way David writes and the way Cape Winger writes. And he said, David only wants three chords. And he said he'll come back with you with all with these songs. And after a few days, you just can't get them out of your head. They're so catchy. But he doesn't want a lot of chords. He just wants the basis basis of the song. Yeah. I mean, I would say, obviously, I mean, stating the obvious that David likes straight ahead rock stuff, hooky stuff, stuff that's catchy. So, yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Did you ever ask David about any of the songs he wrote in the past, how he wrote it and what he was thinking when he did it? Um... I can't say that I would bother him for that. I mean, he shares stories here and there about yeah. when he, when how he came up with this or when this happened. You know, and that's always great stuff. I can't, you know, being put on the spot right now, coming up with something. Okay, <laughs> just eluding me. But uh, he, he does share lots of stories, and I think that's always an awesome part of being in the band with him. Is number one, he's your friend and colleague when you're hanging out with him. But then number two, he's obviously got an illustrious. Uh, history and he's able to uh, share these amazing stories with you, working with Jimmy Page and Richie Blackmore. Come on, man. It's great. <laughs> you said he's more about instincts. Would you consider yourself then, when it comes to writing, are you a perfectionist? Uh, I, I don't know. I, that's, that's really hard to say anything about yourself in that because I think those things are always relative, right? So mm-hmm. 
somebody might say, if I call myself a perfectionist and there's somebody out there that thinks I'm a hack, well, then they're probably laughing themselves silly when I say that. So I don't know. That stuff's all relative, man. Yeah. Like, are you are you more critical then on writing lyrics or, or music? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I would say that the, the lyric thing with this, with running games, I just really just tried to go with what was on my mind. And a whole lot of it was during time where I was touring and all over the world. And, uh, most of the lyrics were written when I was in Australia. So it just kind of, you know, go for a walk and have the song in my mind and get the lyrics going or typically, um, most of the time just play it back, but they all came out really quickly. I mean, I, I would say maybe I wrote them all really quickly and then went back and tweaked them a second time and went in and went, maybe I should change that. Maybe I should change that. But it's all just kind of listening back to the track. I always have scratch guitar tracks and a melody and then, um, sing to that until I have the lyrics that flow with it or that are speaking to me or whatever. So but they tend to come pretty quickly and easily. And, mm. uh, but again, I, I'm not going on this record. I'm not going for, um, progressive and, you know, I'm not going for like some crazy futuristic, it's a straight ahead rock record, man. So, um, it, it all came fairly easily. Mm. One of the things I love about this, Joel, and I know it's been six years since the first record, you've, your continuity of musicians that are on it besides yourselves, besides yourself, you've more or less the same band of musicians on it. Uh, was that very important to you? Yeah, I mean, I think that ended up being a cool thing, that there's some continuity and uh, consistency between dying to live and running games. So it's nice now, especially knowing this time around, I felt like, okay, I can, I know the personnel. I know what this is going to sound like. I know what, um, what we're dealing with here. So yeah, I I feel like I was able to make, you know, of course I'm going to say, I feel like I was able to make improvements upon, uh, dying to live. Um, but I love dying to live. I mean, I want to, you know, make it sound. That's why I don't like calling it this one more mature because it's not like dying to live with a mature, um, which I think it was. It was just stylistically just diverse, which is, in my opinion, that's cool. I like albums that are all over the map. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I don't like the albums where all twelve songs sound the same myself. But um, anyway, uh, I lost the whole point. I'm so sorry. Man. What a horrible <laughs> answer that was. But the, I, I, I guess, uh, you know, yeah, at, at the end of the day, having the, the lineup back, everybody kicked ass on Dying to Live. And it gave me the opportunity to have things be more consistent and uh, have some continuity there. Well, it must have been easier for you because, you, you know, you're sending the music to the guys and they've already gone through the process with you once before. So I think at this stage, they kind of know more about what you're looking for. Yeah, I think having the ability to uh, to work together and everybody knowing what to expect from each other was better this time around. Um, I think, you know, Vinny and I, when I asked him to play on the first one, we never met at all. So by this time that we'd done the album, I'd written a bit for uh, a song on his album with Carmine that he just put out, and we've done Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp together, and we've actually played a gig in support of Dying to Live together. So, so you know, we know each other now. And so to be able to um, do the album and, and I guess just know each other really better helps in the process. And I just try and stay out of their hair, man. I give them the, because I'm doing all the writing, I don't want to add to it by overproducing these guys and, and suggesting what they play too often. So in general, I just give them the guitar tracks and they record and that's what you hear on the record. Okay. So there's no, I was going to ask you, what the tracks were that you sent to the guys. So it's it's literally guitar with maybe a drum machine on it with no bass guitar and that's it? I don't do that drum machine thing, man. That to me is like, I there's nothing I hate more than that, like sitting and putting MIDI drums down. I just, I take the guitar riffs, uh, record them to a click track and then I have, when Vinny and Tony get it, it's a, a lead track of me playing what the vocals are going to sing. So it's just a guitar playing the melody of what the vocals would be with the riffs and then they track to that. And then what I do eventually in writing session number two, once I have drums and bass is I'll take and I'll write all the lyrics to those melodies finally. Cause when I, when I'm writing, I'll usually write a chorus. So I already have the lyrics planned for the chorus most of the time. 
and then piece together the rest of the lyrics at that point in time. And then there you go. And then, and then I record myself singing the whole album for Russell, like doing what's called a guide track. And he listens to that back and just sings it a whole lot better than I do. <laughs> I, 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 I per- Joel, I personally think that Russell Allen is one of the most underrated singers out there in hard rock. With all the styles of music that he's done, you can literally throw anything at him and he'll nail it. Yeah, Russ is amazing. And uh, there's another prime example of somebody I've gotten to know. I mean, Russell and I barely knew each other uh, when we did Dying to Live. I think we'd done one PSO tour together, and now we've we've done five or six of those together. So, I mean, I've spent a lot of time on the road with Russ, and, and I feel like you know, we, we know each other. So um, just knowing what to expect, and um, so that helps a lot. Uh, but, yeah, he's amazing. And Russell's uh, you know, one of the best rock vocalists in the world. Hmm. One of the people I want to ask you about on the record, and probably not a lot of people ask you about her, is uh, Chloe Lowry. Um, I I saw her sing. She did Rocktopia up here in Boston about two years ago, and I interviewed her. She had a solo record out. She is an absolutely amazing singer. Yeah, she's ridiculous, man. She's she's amazing. This time around. Uh, she didn't really sing lead on this one, but I had her on uh, the final track on the, the the title track, Running Games, which I wrote at the end of the process. So I had the album title, and I went, you know, it'd be cool to tie this thing up, uh, have, tie it all together and have a cool closing statement that's a different vibe. And so had Chloe kind of sing some ethereal sounding background down there. And, uh, but she's, she's totally amazing and, and a, a great girl as well. Mm. Joel, what was the hardest song to write on the record? Um, I don't think any of them were hard to write. I mean, they, they they all came together at fairly the the same rate. Some of them differently than others. Sometimes I'll write a melody first, like with "Hard to Say Goodbye." That was written um, singing first, with me walking around um, on days off in Tokyo. I, I came up with that with with, with White Snake, and uh, most of these songs I can tie back to coming up with a riff somewhere scattered about the world. So hence the, the title running games really made sense because a lot of the stuff, the ideas and the riffs all, came from all over. It'd be like a geography lesson if I, I went through each song. <laughs> Did you write more songs than was on the record? Like you hear a lot of bands, they'll write 20 and then they'll, they'll release like 11 or 12. No, I mean, I, there's two bonus tracks. There's one for uh, a digital bonus track and a Japanese bonus track. So there's 13 songs total. Um, so, yeah, there you go. Mm. Um, have Frontiers ever approached you to do any of the supergroup projects to do, like Reb did with Black Swan? Um, well, I, they asked me to do, I don't know if you're going to call it a supergroup project or what have you, but um, the, <laughs> the recording with Michael Sweet and Nathan James. No, but, I'm, talking about um, before, I'm talking about before then, Joel, or the last couple of years have they ever asked you. Oh, you know, I mean, there's been some suggestions here and there, but I, I honestly, I've been so busy that it was really hard for me to justify doing any of that. I mean, 2019, I was on the road 285 days out of the year with, between doing White Snake, Cher, and Trans Siberian Orchestra. So there comes a point in time where you're like, I mean, yeah. what more do I need to do? Because when I'm home, the 80 days I was home during the year, do you really want to take 30 of those and, and no. chalk those up to recording? It's like I have two little kids at home. Yeah, you know? I hear you. I hear you. So at a point, you got to kind of draw the line and go, you know what? I'm full up. Like, this is as much as I'm going to work. I could could do it, but it's a matter of does it make sense in my life? And so at some point in time, you when you're that busy with touring, you got to commit to family when you come home. And just go like, hey, I'm not doing anything when I come home. Uh, so now, different times these days. So, you know, all bets are off, man. We're just going to see where all this leads and, and hopefully stay productive. Mm. Now, I've interviewed Michael Sweet a bunch of times. And I know you appeared on one of his solo records. And I've asked Michael about you and him collaborating. And I, I believe I asked you once before as well, Joel. But how did it go from you and Michael to you, Michael and Nathan? Uh, how, how does it go in terms of... No, how did it go? It was originally for years, Michael was talking about just you and him collaborating. And now it's gone yeah, to you know. and him that and was, Nathan. Was, yeah, just just what was presented to me. Um, 
So there was just a little bit of confusion in terms of what it was going to be at first. But, um, I, you know, I, I, at first I thought we were talking about a nascent solo album. I didn't really fully understand. Uh, but now that, you know, hey, that's great. I mean, I like both of them. Nathan, Nathan and I have connected on some songs. I wrote, co-wrote one of the songs on the first Inglorious album with him and then two on this current record. Um, and one of them is a single that's out right now called Medusa. It's doing well. Um, so we've connected on some stuff and he used to be a part of TSO West. So we know each other from rehearsals, Trans-Siberian Orchestra rehearsals. And Michael and I, as you said, I mean, that, that whole relationship is just kind of like grown bit by bit. So we went from, uh, me kind of miming on his, uh, videos, uh, doing, uh, not your suicide, right? I didn't actually play on that track, but I was just the guitar player on the video (laughs) Mm. to, uh, to uh, being somebody who uh, played on some of the songs on the next record, right? like the song Radio that we did this video for. I played on that record but didn't write. And then this past one uh, actually co-wrote the two tracks that I'm on with him on 10, um, doing the uh, writing the guitar riffs and letting him do the vocal melodies and, and all that and the lyrics. And so, yeah, we've just kind of been stepping forward and saying, hey, at some point we're going to do a record some point we're going to do a record because he's inevitable. We, he's a great guy. I like Michael a lot. Um, uh, just, he works hard, very productive dude, very talented, very positive guy. So, um, you know, I, I've been looking forward to working with him really anytime he wants to work together. So, um, with Nathan, that's great. We'll, we'll see what becomes of it. Now, the one thing I do know about Michael, cause I've spoken to him a lot. He writes very, very quickly. He doesn't like, you know, if it's not working, he'll drop it. But he likes to write songs very quickly. Is that the way you are as well? Uh, it's the way. Uh, it's the way I'm working with this with him. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. I mean, I would. I, I guess the answer to that is yes, but it depends on what you're writing. You know, uh, so I think for what we're doing uh, with with rock, straight ahead rock stuff, man, that is a great way to go. Hmm. So I just have a couple of questions, Joel, before I leave you go. You've done a lot of shows now with with David Coverdale and White Snake. What White Snake song that you never played live would you would you put back in the set if you had a choice? Oh man, uh, putting me on the spot here. I know because I, I know uh, you're. I know you're a fan. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I I would say. Something that we've never done is sailing ships in its entirety. We've been kicking into uh, Judgment Day, so maybe doing sailing ships in its entirety would be pretty amazing. Okay, I love I love that song on Slip of the Tongue. Fantastic. That's a great track, man. Yeah, beautiful stuff. Yeah. So, so last last question, Joel. At this stage of your career, do you get more enjoyment out of writing and creating music or playing live? Oh, either way, apples and oranges definitely love each i definitely love recording and i love being on stage and and entertaining so either way i'm just uh <laughs> honestly at this point in time just to be happy and healthy and able to make a living with this and uh hopefully just move forward be productive one way or another I'll okay. either one bro okay joel well do you want to give out all the social media sites where people can get the record and get in touch with you yeah, I mean, if you just go to my, my dot com to start and you can link over to anything from there. Just joelhoekstra.com, J-O-E-L-H-O-E-K-S-T-R-A.com. All right, Joel. Well, I know you've got a ton of interviews. The album's excellent, by the way. I love it. Oh, thank you so much, man. I appreciate that. It means a lot. Okay, well, have a good rest of the day, Joel, and hopefully I'll see you out there soon. All right, cheers, buddy. All right, take care. Have a good one. You Bye too. Bye. Bye. Like I said, incredibly cram show this week. Two great talks with uh, Dave and with Joel Holkster. And of course, we always say is support those guys out there. Go pick up their uh, their latest releases. It does help keep things rolling, supporting artists in these uh, incredibly, incredibly shitty times. So that will do it for this week in uh, usual focus on metal fashion. I once again have no idea what I'm going to be doing for next week. You know, I've got a bunch of stuff I started editing and just kind of looking at what we had to choose from. And this week was, uh, I don't know, I just kind of struck it lucky with this week because uh, I saw a theme happening with just the incredible amount of stuff that both Dave and Joel are doing. And I thought, that's great. That's two great things that uh, go together. Kind of the uh, the Reese's Cup of an episode. 
But for next week, not really sure yet what we're going to do. The top contender right now as I sit here mixing this one will probably be an interview with author Joel Miller. But then again, something else with uh, a more timely need might drop in between now and then. And uh, we'll just have to change course. But uh, we'll see how it goes. And one more small thing before we get out of here for the week, and that is that Richie hit me up the other day, let me know that uh, our Facebook had uh, surpassed 10,000 followers, which is pretty cool. He figured that uh, that's, uh, you know, a little under 1,000 a year for every year we've been on or uh, something like that. I'm not going to calculate it out. But anyways, that's uh, that's pretty cool. Definitely a reflection of all the work that uh, Richie has been doing with the Facebook community. I really can't take any credit for that. I haven't done really anything on the Facebook page for I don't know how many years now. Richie, as usual, doing an exemplary job on that end of it. So big thanks to him and thanks to all of you out there taking part in uh, that little part of our metal community. Honestly, back in the day when uh, Dario and I started this, I never thought that uh, we would actually get to that point. I was even kind of uh, amazed that here we are all these years later still chugging along. But anyways, for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie myself and everybody else here at focus on metal have yourselves a great metal week be safe out there and as always remember focus on metal everything else is insignificant Still here? It's over. Go home.